Oh, Hillary, how should we be? Should we be happy or should we be upbeat for our listeners? Uh, like the truly depressed people that we are. I yeah, I know, I know. I mean, we were just saying to each other that like I I mean, I for some reason I thought that it would be like fun to revisit this book because it'd be interesting to sort of see this kind of earlier moment in a set of debates about climate change and um uh, politics yeah and it it is like uh it's it is interesting to revisit it for well, i don't think that the it's the book's fault that oh, no, it's not the book's fault no miserable it's just it's the, the world it's the world which is falling apart and uh uh, making us depressed. Hello. That was the cold open. <laughs> that, was, that was a really good one. Yeah. That was really good. <laughs> Matt and Hillary, Green Earth, Book Two, Fifty Below, Fifty Degrees Below, Chapters Fourteen, Fifteen, and Sixteen is where we're at right now. That's right. Uh, um, yeah, I like that. The first that we're, I mean, this is just say whatever you were going to say, but uh, just the, the the title of this chapter is "Is there a technical solution?" And I like that as the question because clearly there is and there isn't. Like, yes, obviously we need like to marshal all the all the humanity's brilliant mm. technological mastery of the earth into doing good but also mostly it's not a technical solution at all it's very clearly a uh, social and political solution which is uh, not yeah. materializing in our reality yeah yeah nor in the re- nor in the reality of the book right you know right. like um yeah the sort of um uh, at least to this point in at least to this point in the book, the sort of sense that there is just this um, the sense of the the kind of enormous gap between like what it's possible to like propose or research, um, you know, that that like Frank and the and the NSF are trying to do in their like list of kind of practical solutions, technical solutions, the sort of gap between that, and like the rapidity with which things are happening in the world and the degree to which those things are happening at this, like um, just at the level of daily life, you know, um, that sense of a kind of, I mean, and the same with the political solutions too. I mean, I think we'll probably talk about the, like, you know, in this section, we get like a little, I'm running for president speech from, what's he called the world the world's senator phil chase phil chase um and then we also get a document drawn up by one of the nsf people that like um sort of proposes like this kind of like big language big thinking for a thing that they call per- permaculture i think um intriguingly um uh and like both both of those things feel so far away from the places where we in this in in the novel where we get like textures of everyday life and also just like from where we are in you know the sense of this stuff in everyday life as well yeah 
Yeah, there's a lot of this section reading it was just a very hard in the context of what's what's been happening lately. Like, for example, so like we we talked earlier before we started recording, scientists all over the world are getting arrested by chaining themselves for chaining themselves to bank to banks or whatever bank headquarters. Um, it's barely making a blip in like the mainstream media. Um, homeless encampments in New York are being demolished. Um, and the mayor of New York is invoking the gospels in saying, in explaining what he was like, I can't believe that if Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John weren't, were around today, they wouldn't be here helping me get these people off the street. What? Yeah. He said something like that. Fucking insane. Completely fucking insane. Because that's what those guys were famous for. They were famous for that. And they were famous for places where unhoused people are trying to live. They well, famously, they all had houses all the time, especially when they were the disciples of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, (laughs) The only son of God. Um, um, Here in Lewiston, there's been a uh, there. There was this attempt by I don't know if I talked about this on the podcast before. Did I tell you about this? There's a, a like a group a public, a kind of a a private, a group of citizens here in Lewiston, Maine, um, who are homeless advocates. They, they got a bunch of money from various sources, not the Lewiston city government at all to buy a building, to create a 24 seven, all one-stop shop, homeless shelter place. They, you know, like all services basically Mm. that would have like many couple dozens of beds or whatever. And the city council, basically somebody on the city council or in city hall leaked the location of the place to the the person who owned it, this like rich asshole who lives down in Portland, who immediately increased the price and refused to sell it to the group who was going to buy it for the homeless people. It's already vacant. Uh, People sleep in the doorway already. Um, and then the city council, I mean, they're four to three by a four to three vote. They did all this like underhanded shit. Um, the four people like obviously conspiring with each other uh, separate from the other three people on the council to do all this stuff. There was a huge meeting, uh, council meeting where like tons of citizens showed up and they all, you know, were there to advocate for the, you know, for this more increased homeless housing thing um facility because we have like lots of homeless people in lewiston maine a city of thirty six thousand people i mean it doesn't make any sense yeah yeah five people spoke against it like a hundred spoke in favor of it they were there for hours hours and hours until like 11 p.m the four people including like the city council president like gaveled at gaveled it shut, tabled it, like we're, we're done with talking about this. They voted to have a moratorium on discussing new homeless shelters in the city until for six months. So there's like a six month moratorium where they can't even talk about having homeless shelters anymore because then the problem will just go away, clearly. And then the four people voted to put some guy on the, on the planning commission that had not been approved or like had just been put in under the radar. The other three people were like, what the fuck is going on? The other three council members were like, what the fuck is going on? And they just like put this guy on the planning board. 
for like underhanded stuff. I mean, it, for like what, whatever reason, like all of this, this is a, this, the second largest city in Maine, 36,000 people, but it's like some of the most, like what is going on? Like machine politics in Lewiston, Maine. It's so nasty and weird. That's uh, so gross. upsetting. That's so um, upsetting. bizarre, bizarre stuff. Uh, Those are just a few of the things that are making us uh, coloring our view of this uh, great book by Kim Stanley Robinson. <laughs> should I tell a digressive but funny story that's also- Yeah, please funny. do. Um, yeah. So- <laughs> So I, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna use I won't use names in this in this story, but our our house, um, which is part of a little row of two flats, the alley behind us is um, on the other side of the alley. It's all like light industrial. What was it was once like a lot of like little factories. There's still some factories there, um, warehouses, like, you know, but it's, it's industrial space on the other side of the alley. And the building that is directly behind us is owned and used as a, as storage, um, by a woman who hosts a, um, television reality TV show where you like fix up houses and resell them. Uh, and since I'm in since I'm in Chicago, it's probably not hard to figure out what show this is because I think there's only one show like this set in Chicago, and infamously, at least to people in Chicago, like over the course of this show's being filmed, there have been multiple occasions on which um, I think at least two occasions on which it turned out they were doing the work on one of the seasons of the show, like unpermitted. Um, so <laughs> you know, uh, I mean, and and you know, maybe that was not the host of the show's thing or whatever. But so we got a letter in the mailbox saying that the person who is the host of this show, who owns that building behind us, wants to get it rezoned um, in order to have it be um, a place where sh she could live as opposed to an, an industrial. So a big rezoning change. Um, and, you know, this has not been like um, officially sort of like officially, supposedly this hasn't been put in motion yet. Um, but she's inviting neighbors who would, of course, be concerned about this to come to her space to hear her sort of like make her presentation about why she wants to do this. And it would be a big rehab project um, because this is like it's basically a warehouse building and to make it into a living space would obviously require extensive work. So um, so yes. I mean, and, and you can see why we might because like we also like live in an area that is like very fragile in terms of like you know like whatever that has been heavily gentrified um and has a kind of particularly where we are a sort of fragile balance of like maintaining people who have lived in the neighborhood a long time um you know and i i think anything like starting to rezone into into like um uh living space you know, obviously is like a huge concern for like expanding gentrification, particularly in these kind of like big industrial buildings. Cause like, well, what like you essentially have like a rich person coming in and wanting to turn an old warehouse into a mansion. Yes. Into a mansion or like into like, what's the other thing that's going to happen in spaces like that? Like fancy loft yeah. kind of apartments or business or businesses that like, you know, don't serve 
anybody, blah, blah, blah. So you can see why this would be like worrying or whatever. And, but of course we felt like, yeah, we had to go to this thing. And as we're walking over there, like literally one minute from our house, but as we're walking over there, we were kind of joking about, you know, haha, probably they just want to do this because they want to film this as a season of their Uh, show, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Obviously, given that they already own the building, it would be, you know, that's cheaper. You don't have to buy the building, blah, 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 blah. Um, Yeah, so we're like laughing about that. And we get to the door of the property and there's a Xerox like piece or printout piece of paper on the door that says, I mean, by the way, this is for a community meeting about a rezoning issue where the where supposedly our alderman was. And on the door, it says, by entering this property, you are agreeing to be filmed. Anything that you say, as well as your image, is the property of this XYZ production company, blah, 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 blah. So, of course, we were like, well, fuck that. We're not going in there. Like, you know, and what the fuck? I mean, this is like posing as a community meeting about something that is actually like a significant issue and clearly is just like doing the background uh, for like, you know, episode one of the, you know, new season of this reality TV show. And anyway, we have obviously made some complaints to the alderman and unsurprisingly have not heard anything back. You're it's not Carlos Rosso, is it? You're Okay. Yeah. I didn't think no, so. No, we're like, we're West. We're West. You're West of head. Um, God, that's so fucked up. Yeah. I mean, hilarious, but it's slightly, also hil- like, slightly hilarious. So, but- like, why is everything a fucking TV show? Like, it's not, not everything's a TV show, guys. Like, yeah. some people have to live their lives. I mean, it's just like, uh, boy. All right, let's talk about the book. I know that was completely not relevant, but it just occurred to me. And it is funnier than thinking about climate change. I think it is relevant, though. I mean, in a way that like. But like fucking private property. I mean, like this, you know, like, oh, my God. Well, yeah, private. I mean, like, yeah, that's that is one thing that actually this book, which we were which I was sort of complaining to you about before called The Future Earth by Eric Holthouse, mm-hmm. which I do recommend. I mean, it's an easy read. It's not, you know, it's a little bit pie in the sky for its uh, proposed solutions. But one thing it does say is like private property is a big part of the problem. Yeah, uh, the whole concept of it needs to be abolished. And and I think one thing that I have been thinking about lately, and in relate and partly in relation to this book, but 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 in relation to other things too, is like, so, you know, climate change is coming. The IPCC report is extremely depressing. This is why we're depressed. Um, and and the com- complete wholesale change alteration to our lifestyles is coming, whether we want it to or not. And um, how it's, how that manifests itself, how that materializes is still a going concern in a way. But one of the things that we, that I think of as, and this relates to the concept of private property is like having to like us getting used to some, a new way is like spending a lot more time in public and with each other. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like communally eating communal entertainment. This is part of the problem of like computers and <laughs> like home computers and like television in the like private television in the home and like the erosion of um, movie theaters and regular stage theaters and just like public space in general is that that stuff is all very environmentally friendly and and more like uh, like bigger apartment buildings more communal living less private property less of a of like suburbanization f- fewer private cars more public transit all of that stuff is not only 
you know, um, I don't know, well, it's all, it's all of it. It's all the good things, basically. It's living together. It's getting along with each other. It's getting to know each other. It's environmentally friendly. It's um, this kind of more like permaculture, what, which we'll get into later. I mean, these are things that we've really lost very like stunningly in the last, I would say like 20 years, but over the course of the 20th century, we progressively lost them. And um, there are things that we ought to be figuring out how to relearn how to do, because I think a lot of people just don't really know how to hang out with a bunch of strangers anymore. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, th- I think that's really right. I mean, and and then at the same time, like running against that are just like, um, you know, uh, just the ongoing privatization of public space, right? Not yeah. only the dwindling of, you know, things like movie theaters, Right. But like um, we were just talking about the Obama Center on the south side of Chicago, like it's going to, you know, cut down another 2000 plus trees and close a nature sanctuary in order to turn a big swath of public park, you know, well used public park into a golf course. What does the Obama Center have to do with a fucking golf course? That's my other thing is like, it's all all it is, is like, it's just like, it's like tourism. It's like what an asshole. It, it's extraordinary, but like, that's exact. It really is like, you know, the things that we should be thinking about doing with parks are, and this is actually, I think this is, I think both like thinking about yeah. private property and like isolation within like monadic or dyadic or familial units, um, you know, um, and thinking about like, um, you know, outdoor, uh, like spaces that become something more than what they were like that, like is you know, that seems to me on this read of this book, like, or, you know, that feels to me like this is so much sort of at the heart of where the book's like, I don't know, it's like kind of speculative kernel or it's, it, you know, it's giving us a thing that like takes us sort of outside of the like, can science become, can science become political? Can politics be reconciled to science? Like takes us outside of the world of like these two like technocratic versions of a a quote unquote solution to the problem is in the way, like, so right at the beginning of the section that we read for today in the like sort of uh, what intro prefatory part to chapter 14, which is called, is there a technical solution? Um, you know, we get this kind of repeated, still, it was hard to imagine it would ever happen to you, right. um, which I remember as the first time I read this, like, that seemed to me to be the kernel of like what these books were trying to do, aside from the way in which they are doing certain kinds of things with like this kind of spy espionage thriller plot and various other kinds of things. Like at the heart was this sort of repeated um you know, just poking at like, now you have to imagine this. And the reason that you have to imagine it is because like, I'm just going to give you this really basically like pretty ordinary middle-class life stuff and show that like, you know, this isn't going to be some like slow incremental process you know, even if you don't think you've been feeling it, even if you can't imagine it, it's going to come home, right? It's going to come home and it might come home like in kind of spectacular ways, or you might be able to keep telling yourself for a long time, it's just the weather, right? So it's it that on first, on first reading these books, like I really thought of that as like, that's the kind of kernel here is like, 
you know, trying to push on, like, why is it hard to imagine this happening when it obviously is happening? What would it mean to, you know, what, like, what does it do to be able to imagine that it's happening? Um, and in a lot of ways, I think, you know, this, you know, these are still really important. Those are still really important kinds of, um, those are really still important kinds of questions, you know, like, despite the fact that we live in this moment in which I think that rhetorically, you know, rhetorically from certain like kind of, you know, like, let's just say left and liberal positions, we get like a lot of like claims about how we have to imagine different things, you know, like we have to imagine new futures and this stuff, but like very little attention to like why it is that like acts of imagination are actually quite difficult, you know, (laughs) and why we might be so buffered against perceiving that a thing that is happening is happening, you know, um, but there's a real difference between that question, right? Why is it so hard to imagine? And the idea of sort of like the search for the, for the technical solution, you know, like, um, which in some ways, you know, I think we might think here also itself finds the whole thing slightly hard to imagine, you know, because it's certain that there is like, it, it will be possible to deal with this on the terrain of some kind of technological mastery of one kind or another. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that, that, that section, that opening prologue ends with the kind of image of the bubble that life encompasses around the earth from about 14,000 feet high to just a, a little bit, you know, below the ocean or whatever, um, that's the bubble that life lives on in this otherwise dead rock. And it's very, very, it turns out it's very, very fragile. Um, but still, it's hard to imagine, like hard to imagine that hard to imagine it all happening to you. And yeah, like, I think that the interesting, you know, when you, as you were talking, one of the things that I was thinking about is like the only, the normal middle-class life that we see is the one in the Quibbler household, yeah. which is constantly depicted as one of like controlled chaos. Charlie is always cooking and taking care of Joe and doing his job at the same time. Um, Joe is having these like weird fits or whatever. Um, uh, And so that already seems like this kind of like quasi stable system and everybody else lives in this weird other space. Like obviously Frank is the most extreme version of that of like being most extreme version of like the disparity between what he lived in one day and then suddenly had to invent for himself the next day and like living in a tree house. But then also even Diane, like we don't really see her at her apartment, but she's at work constantly or she's at the gym. And so like, it gives us that picture of everyday life that actually bursts the bubble of you thinking like, oh, my everyday life is very normal. And it's like, I have a home and I go there and I spend a lot of time. There. It's like, no, we're constantly going back and forth between spaces. Everything is already rather destabilized and like, or or just kind of this con- kind of controlled chaos. And like that first moment of after the prologue of, is there a technical solution? Uh, it says, he says, uh, Frank's habits were his only home now. And so the trip to Kemba Lung had, his, had its aftermath, uh, made him feel a bit homeless all over again. What to do with the day? This became the question he and had to answer a new hour by hour, and it was hard. But your habits being your only home, that's not just Frank. That's like all of us, yeah. right? Like, yeah. like it is how we, what we decide to do with the day 
and how conscious we are of making those decisions versus how much we fall into habits that feel homely, um, but that that when we're taken out of them suddenly can appear, you know, alien. And um, this is the seems like a very modern condition, but it's one that is only accelerating under the deprivations of capitalism and capitalist generated climate change. I just that just made me think um, about. Uh, yeah, I mean, this is it's such a one of the I think one of the things that like, um, I mean, yeah, so I think it's interesting to kind of uh, um see the novel i mean i think this is a little bit of a like sort of counter counter reading of it or counterintuitive reading of it you know it's interesting to see the novel as um uh giving us in these supposedly safe secure non-precarious lives that are supposed to have like a kind of like wholeness i mean if we leave frank aside for the moment they're supposed to have a sort of wholeness to them like um we do see uh you know, in it does feel like partly just the way that the novel sort of moves from point of view to point of view, um, which is usually also from space to space. It does feel like this very partitioned up world, you know, and and very much like, um, you know, the kind of which is this is why the Frank story, I think the aspect of the Frank story that is about living in Rock Creek Park is so interesting because that is the only place really where we see something like, um, you know, life lived in common with others who you are mm -hmm. not either work colleagues with or married to slash the parent of, you know, um, and that, um, you know, and I was just thinking, cause the, the stuff in here about habit, um, and being at home in habit made me think of, um, Waram from 2312, but like, well, Ram's life, you know, in in his sort of search for the the pseudo iterative, like that is very much about having this kind of like a picture of life that is very whole, you know, in which um, uh, there is a kind of like there is a sort of like flow to it, and there isn't the this kind of you know the way in which he works and who he is and who he spends time with and where he is, you know, there's a kind of like wholeness to it. Um, that, that, you know, here we just like in this like kind of realist novel way, like we just see like how, um, I don't know, like how many walls there are around people's lives. And that in turn then makes it hard, like right after that paragraph that you just read about Frank's habits or his only home, we get on the other hand, all the Kambali refugees flying into Washington helped him keep things in perspective. He was homeless by choice. They were not. And this is a, this a little bit starts to emerge in this section, you know, like his sort of homeless status is very different from the homeless status of other people who are homeless refugees, the guys who live in the park, right? There's a moment when like Frank thinks about like how much money he's saving by living in the treehouse. It could be enough money for him to pay a deposit on a house in San Diego. Um, and like, you know, so there we get the like, ah, so like your, your life, you know, like in, in under the regime of like private property and privatized, you know, privatized social relations, your life is cut up into these pieces, you know, like home at the domestic work, you know, like a trend transit between them which is only is only transit it's not a space of encounter it's not a, it's not where you live you're just like commuting or whatever it is right like 
But then there is something that makes a whole or a totality, right? There is something that holds it all together. And that thing is not like, you know, um, something human, right? It's the econ- it's the economy, right? It's capital that- like, Indebtedness. That holds it all. It's, it's indebtedness, or as in the like little prologue to this section, it's insurance too, right? Yeah. You know, the most, right before we get like, you know, Frank's sort of like thinking about like, you know, the kind of fragile bubble of life on the planet we get, it was the most expensive insurance year ever for the eighth year in a row. Well, so what does that have to do with like the failure of our ability to imagine this stuff impacting us? Well, it probably has everything to do with it, right? Because like a kind of actuarial imagination gives us a relationship to the future that is like a really different relationship to the future. And also this whole thing has everything to do with like how, you know, here we have this like actually very small number of refugees, um, you know, who were, who were paying attention to here. Right. Um, but they still like constitute this real problem, right. You know, they, they, you know, they stand in here actually for like, you know, um, a mass of refugees already displaced by the stuff that, that we find so hard to imagine. Right. So I think that there is this kind of like, there's an interesting, like, kind of, I don't know, there's some interesting, like, push-pulls here, which push back on the idea that, like, we get this kind of, um, yeah, anyway. I yeah, well, I mean, and we we should probably get deeper in, but I'll just jump, and I'll, so that I'll, therefore, I'll jump into somewhere farther along. Let me find my notes here. Um, uh on page 494, which is at the end of chapter 15. So we're just going to jump around. Um, He asks, he sort of asks himself, uh, oh, this is Charlie, actually. Maybe this was just the way it was going to be now. Maybe that's the way it had always been. People had lived cocooned in oil for a few generations, but beyond that, the world remained the same waiting for them to reemerge into it. So this idea of like, what's it going to be like when we reemerge into the world out of this cocoon of oil? And in a way, Frank has sort of done that almost. I mean, he has a car that he lives in. Um, but that the age of oil has to come to an end at a certain point, whether, whether we end it or it ends us. Um, and of course, even if we were to, you know, cut all fossil fuel consumption and production tomorrow, we would still be living in the age of oil for many hundreds yes. or thousands of years as the climate resolves itself and comes back into some kind of new equilibrium. But I love that image of like, we've been cocooned in oil for this long. And what's it going to be like? What's the world that we're going to emerge out of it into? Because this, there's other passages in this section that talk about architecture as a kind of clothing or like the building as, yeah. you know, basically we're using buildings as clothing. And this all, again, is this kind of like, or technological sublime, this like technological sublimity of of extending ourselves and our faculties out into the universe so that to, to protect, to cocoon ourselves into a kind of uh, protection against nature, right? Um, and and Frank's experience shows that, um, you know, very much counter to typical middle-class, specifically American living, there are lots of people who already live this way and have been living this way for, you know, for the duration, 
right? Right, right, right. Well, it's, and it's interesting that line, yeah, cocooned in oil is a great line, but beyond that, the world remained the same waiting for them to reemerge, right? But yeah. it hasn't remained the same, right? right? Because like the cocooning in oil is what has been like changing the world, you know, at an increasingly rapid pace since sometime, you know, in the late, uh, whatever, like in the late 18th century, blah, 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 right? Or, you know, fossil fuels anyway, um, if not oil. See Andreas Malm. See Andreas Malm. Uh, um, uh, but, but, right, so that's really interesting. And then I think, yeah, we get some, we get some really interesting thinking on this. And I, I, I I think here, you know, um, uh, again, like the, the kind of, um, you know, one of the things I, one of the ways I think we have to think about Frank's story is that on the one hand, we are meant to kind of, I think we are meant to like think with him on the idea that like, there is something that he is living in this high-tech paleolithic way. And then we need to kind of like think, I mean, in this section, we get like an explicit reference to shamanism. I mean, you know, like, um, but on, but on the other hand, there is, there is a way in which like, you know, Frank's, you know, there's that section where Frank is thinking about, um, the body that was found in the Alps or whatever, like the, you know, and, and Alpine man, Alpine man. And he's like, we were exactly the same, you know, he had a fanny pack too, <laughs> um, you know, like, um, and um, I mean, and I do think we were supposed to think a little bit about that stuff and think about like, you know, yeah. Like what, what are I these kind of like basic, um, you know, aspects of human life just as like Frank's claim that the technological sublime, the in the maybe the first instance of the technological sublime is the ability to be warm, right? Which that I mean, I, I think that that's like that's a fascinating line, right? Because like we do not, I mean, the sublime is supposed to be the encounter with like you know the kind of radical immensity that we can't comprehend, right? And feel like you know fear in front of or feel trans transformation, right? You know, but that version of it is actually about like, you know, what did it, what did it feel like when for the first time, like human creatures were able to basically just like be comfy, you know, like in relation to the sublime of like cold, you know, right. right? Um, so I think that's amazing. But then of course, also like I, I noticed in this section like we get every time Frank is like going through and like cataloging, like how he's keeping himself warm. It is so loaded with brand names. Yeah, you yeah. Know? The brand names of the technical materials. And like, you know, I don't know how you make those technical materials, but I'm going to guess that like they require, you know, a significant amount, not only a significant amount of energy to take them, to make them. I'm going to guess that like making the materials that make those materials also, yeah, anyway, right. Nylon get, is like, not nylon's not found in nature as far as i know i mean his like all of all of that stuff right like so he too i mean like and i think like literally some of that stuff is made out of, right is made out of plastics right yeah, so yeah, yeah. it's also made out of oil so it's like literally cocooned in oil you know and so on the one hand i think there is you know there is a way in which like i think we're being asked to think about um to both take this very seriously and not to turn to it as like authenticity, right? Or like this is this is this is the place where like human and nature are no longer in opposition or something like that, right? But instead, like we're you know we're thinking quite specifically about what we've made, you know, and like 
um, Frank's sense of like the magic of his little stove and what like, you know, a paleolithic person on seeing it, you know, would have thought of that, you know, like that, I, I think that that's like kind of an amazing moment, right? Yeah. But it is also like, this is not just pure, and you know, the Rock Creek Park is not a purely natural space. And that's kind right. of the point of it. You know, in fact, this is like a, um, this is a space after a disaster. It's a human-made space, right? Um, you know, after a disaster, in the middle of a disaster, um, being lived in and worked. It's a, you know, it is like in that way, like, um, so anyway, there's this kind of like pushback. And then also there is this sense of like, maybe largely unspoken here, you know, just the kind of like overarch of, of capitalism here, you know, the stuff that you can buy, even when Frank goes in to like bring the tarps to the other guys. And, you know, he uses his technical know-how, his experience and his skill, like he knows how to build a good shelter. Right. Um, but also he is able to go purchase stuff and then frustrated by how like they don't seem to like buy the stuff that they you know like they use their money wrong or whatever right you know? yeah like come on you guys know this you got to stay dry like yeah okay. yeah exactly <laughs> um yeah and and he even has recourse again later on 502 to go back to kind of articles about the prisoner's dilemma and and developments in research around that 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 say that suggest um uh, this kind of generosity could be explained as group selection. So group selection, how do not only natural selection, how do individuals select for themselves, but how do groups evolve as collectives or something? Um, but only if the definition of the group was enlarged, perhaps even by some leap of the imagination, empathy. Someone in the journal recently had suggested that this was the story of human history so far, successive enlargement of the sense of the group. The authors of this na uh, Nature article went on to tentatively suggest that generosity, which held no advantage of all, at all to the giver, might be structurally sounder in the long run than generosity that brought some kind of return to the cooperator. So just the suggestion of like always being generous, right? And like implicit in here is this idea that maybe these extreme events that we're going to be encountering will somehow motivate a mass of people to not only a mass of people to always be generous, but also the most important people in the world to also be, to be always generous, right. which are right. the richest, most powerful people in the world mm -hmm. set up by this weird um, political economic system that has, you know, emerged. Let's not even blame anybody for constructing it because it emerged and maybe it emerged as part of this cocoon to cushion us against like uh, dealing with reality, like, okay, like the delegation of responsibility, the hierarchy, the creation of hierarchies to say that guy's in charge. If something goes wrong, we can blame him. Ballooning that out over a whole kind of system that we call like de democratic Republicanism or whatever the fuck you want to call it. Right. Right. Um, maybe that also has been part of our problem. That doesn't, that doesn't get into this novel because Phil Chase maintains this position of like, if we can, this, this like av avatar uh, position of like, if we can get the right people into office who have the right ideas and have a sense of empathy um, for the whole world, not just for the United States or for their district or whatever, if we can get those right people in, then maybe they can make the good decisions on our behalf and like, we can get out of this or whatever. I, I, yeah. And I think we should go to the, the, the chapter in this or the scene in this, that I found this section that I found just like very strange, which is Phil Chase on, 
not just on a boat, but also on a hot air balloon. Wizard of Oz, yeah. Yeah, Wizard of Oz, exactly. Um, But I was going to say on, um, uh, in one of the scenes where they're, um, they're meeting at the NSF, you know, Diane and Frank and Anna and, uh, 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 and Anna has just been doing some reading. I love how Anna just like, this is kind of forcing her to have a political, the political education that she really didn't want to have. Um, but she's learned about like, um, you know, as the scientists for, this is on 442, 443, the scientists for Johnson campaign, um, who were like, you know, urging people not to vote for Goldwater because of, uh, because of his like nuclear hawkishness, blah, 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 blah. Um, and then on 443, um, uh, it's like, we're still in some feudal court, Frank observed, where physical proximity to the King actually mattered. You're sounding like Edgardo. Yeah. He said that today, actually, <laughs> but, but, you know, like there, that is like one of these like brief moments when like, um, yeah, there is something, there is something in which we get a kind of like glimpse of like, yeah, so what do we make of like, you know, centering your politics on like the charismatic leader? Clearly in this novel also, I mean, as we see when they go, um, when Diane and Frank go to um, go to New York, like proximity actually really does matter, right? And, you know, again, she's like another like Mary in Ministry for the Future, she is another like bureaucrat who does her work really well because she knows how to get close to people, how to bring people in, you know, like she has a charismatic quality, people listen to her, um, you know, so like that sort of like, yeah, I mean, there is, there is, you know, not from the point of view of like Charlie, and I think not fully from Frank's own point of view, but there is this kind of like, yeah, so this is a political system that like exactly what you were saying, right? You know, in which like um, hierarchy is a, you know, hierarchy is dependency. And there are, there is this like center of like almost magical power, right? Who is like the sort of sovereign figure. Um, and that like doesn't square with the kind of like claims about how we can have like, um, you know, a better democracy or whatever right. it might be. Right. Well, I mean, in Frank's relationship with the guy with the bros in the park is one of total kind of like mm. liberal benevolence. Like I'm going to come and help you out out of the goodness of my heart. I mean, like there is a kind of like, and they call, they call him on it, right? Yeah, they're, they do. They're, they're like, Oh yeah. Great Peace Corps guy. Thanks. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but at the same time, like they wouldn't have survived the winter without his like, so, I mean, it is true. I mean, and that there's some truth to that as well. I mean, like, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. People need each other. Let's, let's be honest, but yeah, let's go back to the wizard of Oz at the North pole beginning of autumn in New York, 451. There's this regatta, the greatest regatta in the history of the world at the North Pole, which was ice free. And it's like, uh, it's a very charming, magical, almost magical realist image. I mean, again, he's like compared to the Wizard of Oz in an, in a hot air balloon hanging from a, but I also reading this, I'm like, this is just never going to happen. <laughs> yeah. And it's also disturbing. I mean, it's so disturbing. The fifth midsummer festival of the pole. It's not something that you want to celebrate, <laughs> but I guess there are things in the coming future that we won't necessarily have to turn into celebrations, but that will require some marking. Right. I mean, I don't I don't know. They'll call out for meaning to be made around them yeah. because humans make meaning. So maybe this is an image of that. Right. Yeah. 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 I mean, you know, 
Right. And then we might want to compare it to something other than like Burning Man or whatever, but it does kind of seem a little bit like Burning Man. Well, yeah. Who else is going to have the resources to go up there um, and take their catamaran up to the North Pole than the uber rich who go to Burning Burning Man every year? Yeah. Um, I also just, yeah, it's a little hard to believe that the oil companies backed by like massive, uh, you know, national militaries aren't going to be pretty much in control of that whole area uh to ensure the um you know the 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 safe shipment of uh oil uh among other commodities yeah yeah i mean it's like it is a crazy scene like it does seem to me in some ways like yeah and i guess it weirdly it does really like ping between like something that feels like fantasy and something that has this kind of like you know upsetting like oh here you know here, here they are just like sailing around the North Pole, you know, like, um, like a Tati film. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, and I think that Phil's speech is like, um, uh, uh, so on 454, Phil says there's no alternative. Uh, to global cooperation, we have to admit and celebrate our interdependence and work in solidarity with every living thing. All God's creatures are living on this planet now in one big complex organism, and we've got to act like that now. Uh, that's why I've chosen to announce my candidacy here at the North Pole. Everything meets up here. Everything has changed here. This beautiful ocean free of ice for the first time in humanity's existence is a sign of a clear and present danger. Recall what it looked like here even five years ago. You can't help but admit that huge changes have already come. You know, like, but you know, and again, though, it is a kind of like ambivalent image because you can imagine seeing this on TV and being like, oh, it looks really beautiful or it looks fun or whatever it might be. I want to go. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And then he produces this kind of like um, ski run uh, metaphor. Um, And then he says, it's one world now. The United States still has its historical role to fulfill as the country of countries, the mixture and amalgam of all humanity, trying things out and seeing how they work. The United States is a child of the world, you might say, and the world watches with the usual parental fascination and horror, anxiety, and pride. So we have to grow up. If we were to turn into just another imperial bully and idiot, the story of history would be ruined, its best hope dashed. We have to give up the bad, give back the good, um, a bold and persistent experimentation. No more empire, no more head in the sand, pretending, pretending things are okay. It's time to join the, join the effort to invent a global civilization we can hand off to all the children and say, this will work, keep it going, make it better. That's permaculture, as some people call it. And really now we have no choice. It's either permaculture or catastrophe. Let's choose the good fight and work so that our generation can hand, uh, hand to the next one in this beautiful world. I mean, what's interesting about this is like, um, you know, the attempt to think of what would a candidate for the president of the United States who also wanted to say, like, this is really a world project and it just happens that I'm in the United States, but this must be undertaken. Like, how would you say that? Like out of the rhetoric of American exceptionalism, you know? And like, I can kind of imagine, like, as I was reading this, I was like, well, you know, like I can picture like a version of this that like Joe Biden would say, you know, like, and it wouldn't be like totally dissimilar to this, but like this kind of like rhetorical trick of being like, oh, we're still going to be the exception. We're still going to be the leader, um, you know, but it won't be empire. It will be us all working together. Like, um, yeah. 
It's interesting, just the mo- like again, thinking back to the historical moment of the original writing of the books in that Bush era, pre Obama, um, but also like post Soviet Union, but pre the rise of China and like kind of the mul- the multipolar world that we're you know seeing now, kind of maybe possibly emerge in fits and starts and, or, or just not, (laughs) maybe everything will, (laughs) maybe, maybe it'll be a non-polar world and everything will just collapse. Um, because yeah, that's a, that's a really difficult needle to thread is like, we're still, we're going to still fulfill our historic mission, that destiny that is manifest. Um, uh, and, and see ourselves as the nation of nations, especially like in light of something like, um, the years of rice and salt, where India really takes that position. Right. And in a really like convincing way, um, in the years of rice and salt, right. Like that it is kind of because India and China have this kind of tension in that they are in certain ways, the center of the world in terms of how commodities flow and like where the balance of population is and, and where most people live. Right. So it's, it's odd to think about America, especially at our historical moment right now in 2022, going forward as still the center of the world, which was created in that post 45 moment that, that, in retrospect, feels extremely artificial and artificially propped up because of hyper-militarism and like the threat of nuclear warfare, essentially, right? And and dollar hegemony, right? Um, that just seems like really a difficult pill to swallow for the rest of the world, let alone for the people who are increasingly impoverished and endangered here in the, the imp- imperial core, right? Right. Right. I mean, that kind of like, um, you know, right. I mean, so, you know, if we were to turn into just another imperial bully and idiot, I mean, you know, if, if we were to do that a a little late, late, probably for that. Right. But, but the, but the, the big question is like, um, you know, is like, so from the, I mean, I feel like from the vantage point of Phil Chase, who wants to be president, like, you know, and from the sort of vantage point of like, this is kind of what American political rhetoric on in, in its hopeful turn sounds like, you know, uh, I, I, I think absolutely. Um, but like, you know, is it possible to think that like you can reconcile nations, you know, nation states with like the idea of a quote unquote global civilization. Right. Um, that seems like awfully difficult to do, you know, like, I mean, and, and then again, like, you know, the sort of like twinned presence, which you were just invoking of one um, climate refugees, like leave aside all other refugees and all other migrants, like even just thinking about climate refugees, plus like, um, you know, the dispossessed, internal population of the United States here represented by the folks who live in Rock Creek Park, not Frank, but pretty much everybody else, you know, like already, like we, you know, like the reason that there are refugees is because there are borders, you know, (laughs) and the reason that there are people who are dispossessed is because of private part. Anyway, whatever. So it's a, it's like this kind of, I mean, so that idea of like the, I mean, I just, you know, the idea of the politician who says we can, we will both be, you know, um, the best 
the best hope of the world and the best hope of history, we in the United States, and also we're going to make a global civilization. Like, I don't know, you know, I mean, hard yeah. to figure out how that would happen. Yeah. Well, we, yeah. Like who, again, who's the we like, cause it implies a they and a them and a, and another, yeah. And it's like, we're going to, we're here to help you. Oh, good. The Americans are here again. They're going to help us. (laughs) I mean, I am really like the, so he invokes permaculture here. Mm -hmm. And then we get um, on um, 495, where we get sort of the scientist's version of this same uh, Edgardo's um, notes. Right. Notes of the meeting notes of the meeting about social, the social science experiment in elective politics, we get like that similar rhetoric and it, what's, you know, uh, uh, like weird, it's weird to me that in neither case do we get a reference to like what permaculture means in terms of thinking about, um, uh, uh, you know, human um, soil plant interactions you know we only get it at the at the idea of like this is a kind this is a version of sustainable culture itself i don't know that's that it's just like interesting to me the way the word culture i think the word culture kind of steps in here to do a lot of work in the sort of the version of rhetoric that we're seeing here because Mm -hmm. like what is what is culture like what does that mean right well there i mean yeah i mean they're kind of talking a borderless world like yeah they're scientists, so they don't know what culture is, <laughs> right? Yeah, like, like, I mean, or it can mean anything, right? Or it can mean anything, right? Uh, because like they're, they're, that contract with our children is only like the top level, like very, very high, like protection of the biosphere, sustainable uses, clean technologies, carbon balance, climate homeostasis, end of item number one, Night, item number two, right? It's like these just like incredibly high level, right. um, 30,000 feet views. Um, I also, I mean, this just my joke about scientists not understanding what culture is make, reminds me of the meeting that um, Frank has with Marta and Yan in Atlanta, where, where we finally get the backstory of Frank and Marta's relationship And um, they both seem just like awful people, like just terrible, terrible people who don't know how to like interact with other people at all. Like Marta, like on the one hand, you find out like, okay, you first you find out Frank uh, borrowed a bunch of money on their house without telling her. And then you find out about Marta and you're like, oh, she's awful. And like, she does, she's like, she just is terrible at lunch just like a horrible person to hang yeah, out with it yeah like so it's like okay well these yeah. guys they, these guys are all a mess they both just like they're both just like seething seething with resentment yeah yeah um yeah yeah right yeah i mean so this is the other line from uh the from that um the seep <laughs> the notes from the seep oh, right. that i think that interested me, right? So we do get, you know, in the kind of like the point by point of the contract with our children, we get full employment and we get individual ownership of the majority of the surplus value of one's labor, right? I mean, full employment, like, you know, um, uh, when, you know, when you like spin, when you spin that out, there's a real question about whether you can have capitalism at all. You can't, right? Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. The question about, you know, individual, so like, you know, there are these things that are like, you know, pushing back on something that gets kind of unstated here, but then like that, 
because we've talked a lot, I, uh, you know, when in a bunch of the uh, in a bunch of the KSR novels we've talked about, we've talked about the idea of, and this gets invoked in the Phil Chase speech too, you know, the need the need for something that is like a new global religion, right, or you know, a kind of reinvigoration, and this is one of the ways to sort of respond to that, like it's hard to imagine things happening, or like you know, being cocooned in oil, um, is to like have a sense of um. Uh, shared life and planet and celebration and connection, right? And like something that goes beyond um, uh, whatever, like the the sort of like every day. And here I feel like that in both of these, these like, you know, in the speech and in this, in these meeting notes that gets invoked as this idea of permaculture, which on 489, excuse me, 498 is, um, we get a scientifically informed government should lead the way in the invention of a culture which is sustainable perpetually. This is the only good bequest to generations to come. Um, uh, you know, uh, so uh, um, and then you know, and then it then it goes on to say like you know this is you know this has to be this is this kind of future orientation as the idea of a, a perpetually sustainable culture, which. I don't know. It's just like that fascinated me because like, that's a, like, that is a really weird idea. Right. I mean, on the one hand it is, mm. it's invoking something like a whole way of life made global, right. Or made planet planetary probably is a better way to say that. Um, something that does not unlike, you know, the sort of like big planetary binding force that we have now, which is capitalism that doesn't, um, you know, isn't inherently unstable, right? Isn't prone to crisis, isn't, doesn't require like perpetual motion and perpetual growth, um, you know, but instead is perpetually sustainable. But like cult culture, one, like, you know, the idea of a global culture is like a complicated thing to think about and worth like kind of dwelling on. And two, like, culture changes all the time. I mean, that's like, that's like how we live together, you know? Um, so what does it mean to claim that like what needs to be sustainable perpetually is something that we would call culture? Right. I don't know. I don't know. I don't I, like, I don't no, have no. a place to sort of go with that, but like that is that, really interesting to me as a kind of step in word here. Yeah. That makes sense to me. I mean, like, um, yeah, culture is just sustainable perpetually. So kind of like an end of history, maybe. Right. I mean, like, yeah, like I was thinking about this um, earlier about, um, you know, change being the only constant, which is like a very, uh, it's a, oh, that's, it's a trite and true thing trite to say. <laughs> See? <laughs> nice. See what I did? Yeah. Um, because yeah, change is the only constant. And one thing that um, is really weird in capitalist culture, corporate capitalist culture. And we can think about the Marvel movies in this regard is that, um, no, there's nothing that's ever going to change. You're going to get to watch Iron Man movies from now until the end of your life from, you know, you grew up on comic books. You're going to get to watch comic books in the movies and you're going to die in a comic book themed, uh, coffin, you know, right. in the metaverse. Um, so like in the metaverse, you know, you're going to, your consciousness going to be uploaded to the metaverse and, and everything's going to be the same. Yeah. You're never going to die. Robert and, Downey Jr. will be right there with you. And at what, who? Robert Downey Jr. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's finally RDJ, uh, <laughs> right. 
right with me. So yeah, like, um, yeah, there's a, the, that, that, that capitalist culture seeks to freeze time and freeze like cultural change, even, even while it's, it, it requires creative destruction, like constantly Relentless. It hides that, right. It hides that with a patina of sameness and homo homogeneity. Right. Right. Um, even while underneath it is, you know, it is the revolutionary force. Capital is the revolutionary force right. Right. Um, of, of, you know, radically changing, like what we could have seen as like a kind of sustainable, a perpetually sustainable culture. One that doesn't um, radically destroy the biosphere within a matter of decades, right? Like, cause human beings have been around for 200,000 years. So what, what do you define as permanently sustainable? Right, 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 right. And, you know, then, so then maybe we turn, maybe then we need to think about like what culture means in, in the word permaculture, right. Which is not, um, the sort of a whole way of life, but, but specifically like the way in which we, um, interact with, um, tend to, and, um, find our, you know, like, um, produce what we need, you know, in and through our interactions with the world, with the planet. Mm -hmm. Right. So like there we're thinking culture as in like, um, agri agriculture, right. right. Um, but that's a different kind of, you know, like I, so I, I, you know, I guess that like it kind of, um, and there are like, you know, yeah, like so the the idea of permaculture, whether you sort of like buy this as something that can work or not, is that it is in fact possible to um, both like um, uh, sustain human life by doing things that allow you to grow food, and also like not do that in a way that like creates you know um, uh, whatever that destroys um, the biosphere, et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, but then that doesn't seem like, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I'm really, I'm very like hung up on the idea of like, um, we have to create a sustainable culture, partly because it seems like, I mean, and I guess again, like, you know, this makes this like makes good rhetorical sense in both of these cases, because like the problem in some ways of like not being able to imagine that this is happening is actually a problem of not being able to imagine that like things have to, and are going to change. Right. Um, and I suppose you don't sell anyone on a project by, in theory, you don't sell anyone on a project by saying like, well, things are going to be really, really different. And so we got to figure out how we're going to like live in a really different way than the way, the way that we live now, which I think is like, this is like the sort of rhetoric of the Green New Deal is like, you know, oh yeah, there will be change, but don't worry, you know, you will still, not only will you have like the things that you have now that matter, you'll have more, you know, you'll have more and better or whatever. But I just like, I increasingly think, you know, this is not about, you know, this um, novel, but I increasingly think that, although a little bit like, you know, the Frank story makes me think about this. I increasingly think like, I, you know, the thing that people have to be able to like sit with is like, things are not going to be the same. Um, and things are going to be radically not the same, but but that doesn't mean like, it's not possible for us to find ways to like, live and actually like make things that could be like vastly better than what we have now. Right. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and I mean, yeah, things are going to be, you know, radically different, even if there was no climate change, just change happens. Like, 
deal with it. You graduate high school and then you have to go to college and it's really scary for about like six months or whatever. And then you're like, oh, I hate my parents. Actually. I don't like living at home. <laughs> I like to get high and play video games. And that's the change that we want to see in the world. The right? Be the change you want to see. Yeah. Um, it makes me think of, um, I mean, that was great. What you just said too. Um, and I think that that's really interesting. Um, to think about like that kind of sustainable in perpetuity, are we freezing time? What does that mean to, to think about that? Um, uh, you know, it's really our attitude to change that needs to um, be sort of adjusted. Not that it's about ad- adapting, right? Yeah. Adaptability, because that's a, that's a myth as another moment in the, in the book, in this section talks about, I think Frank, maybe it's Charlie talks about how thinks about how adaptation is just this kind of like word that doesn't really mean anything. Right. Um, but rather like, what are the changes that we are, you know, that we're going to suffer that we're going to live through? What are the changes that we can affect in the world? And then what are the things that, you know, are crucial to change so that the amount of change that we experience isn't like utterly fatal. And again, like the other thing to think about too, is even with the IPCC report, which is so dire, right? Yeah. Those changes are going to be happening over the decades. As However much they're baked in now, there will still be people on the earth in the year 2100. And so decisions and changes that we make today will affect the livability and like the quality of life of those future generations. Right. And like, do we believe that things like public transit, libraries, having enough to eat, having food, art, culture, are these things worth doing and preserving and experiencing and sharing and passing on? And if we do, and we don't do everything to make ensure that, that these things are, are sustainable or, or do last into the future, if we don't do that, then what is our real commitment to them? I mean, are we just committed to, to the immediate sensory experience of having these kinds of like experiences or are we, do we feel connected to the seven generations before us and the seven generations right. Right. ahead of us? And like, where are our connect, our, our convictions and, and how do we, you know, we know, but we can't act. Like why? Like that's the question. What's going to get you to act on these on this knowledge of you believing that you feel, you know, that the Odyssey is an important book to you or some shit like that, and that you would like people in the year twenty two hundred to be able to also read Moby Dick. Fucking, I don't know, whatever. Right, 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 right. right. I picked two dead white men. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, well, one of those guys is just made up. Oh no. yeah. Melville, just a made-up person. Uh, no, it was uh, uh, the. Um, you did the old switcheroo on me, which I, I wasn't expecting. <laughs> Glad I made you laugh. Um, yeah, so two. I have two thoughts there. One is um, going back to the book, but the other I was going to say is like, yeah, is a little bit of a sidebar, but you know, I'm teaching this class this quarter, a new class, um, because I like to curse myself to uh, never. Um, whatever. It's a privilege to be teaching classes in the college level. I mean, it is like a privilege. Yes, I, I feel someone who I doesn't feel, get to do that. I, anymore. I know, I know. I'm kidding. I'm I teasing. Very, you. I feel very privileged um, to have <laughs> a job. I, I love having a job. Um, but uh, um, 
Uh, I'm teaching a class on science fiction and the quote unquote more than human, um, you know, which is really a phrase that comes from like, uh, you know, like Donna Haraway and Anna Singh, and then like kind of like out of the sort of new materialism stuff. Um, and, you know, I had a sort of, that's not stuff that I love. I mean, I have like a long relationship with Haraway who I have certain kinds of deep affection for aspects of her work. Um, but, you know, I sort of thought like, but it'll be interesting to read it with some SF texts and blah, blah, blah. And like the more I was working on putting the class together, which is called Rocks, Plants, Ecologies, the more I was like, the thing that drives me crazy about a lot of this like academic work that asks us to think about, um, you know, relation, our relations with the more than human that critiques, you know, um, all, you know, possible versions of like what, like the human relationship to the natural world, um, you know, there are things in there, you know, like I, I, um, you know, I myself have a strong belief in like, um, you know, whatever, like I have a kind of like quasi animist feeling about like, um, things sort of generally. And I certainly like don't, and whatever there are things in there that like, I sort of sympathetic with, but like the more that I'm reading this stuff, the more I keep thinking like, but the question that is in front of us right now is not solved by being like, we live in, you know, we live in an assemblage with like, you know, um, all other things living and non-living or, and it's not solved by being like, we are all deeply entangled. I mean, those things are like, I, true, but I think that those are just, those are descriptions and like the issue in front of us is like, is actually an issue about like what we, you know, goddamn human beings are going to do and why we're not doing anything now. And like, unless I think what you think is that like, it would be okay for ultimately for humans to die off or that it's okay that we not like, um, uh, that we, you know, um, don't think, you know, seven generations ahead, right? I mean, that we do not have that kind of like care for the human beings that are going to be in the world after us. Like, you know, we actually have to ask questions about like what it is that we human creatures like need and do and how we are going to like act and take responsibility, you know, and that like, um, and, and to just say that like, oh, we need, we need to, I mean, yeah, we do need to do some thinking and acknowledging and understanding that like we live in these kind of like complex relations and that the idea that humans are some kind of exception is a historical idea located, you know, like in a very particular like history that is not the history of everyone in the world. All of those things are absolutely true, but it's also like, we don't need to richer descriptions of this stuff, you know, um, or maybe we need them, but like, we really urgently right now need to ask questions about like, how are we going to, how are we going to produce food? You know, how are we going to produce food in ways that are not like, um, destroying, uh, you know, destroying the planet in order to feed everybody. And we can, like, we can figure out ways to do that. Right. And we can learn a lot about ways to do that from, uh, from all kinds of like human cultural traditions, right? We need to think about like how we're gonna live. Like, I don't know, The it was really like very like realizing that all of a sudden like a class that I was thinking would be about like reading some fun theory and is instead as all classes that I end up teach teaching is about like, you know, 
right? Like what is the utopian imagining? And then like, how do we orient ourselves toward that as opposed to just being fucking disoriented, which is where I think that we are now, you know, anyway, sorry, that was a long sidebar. No, it's good. Uh, The other thing I was going to say is like thinking about this question about like stability versus change. Like we get a moment in this section, I think it's on page 420 where- um, That's uh, where I was going to go. Oh, good. Nice. In perfect sync. Uh, uh, Anna and Frank are talking and Anna says to him, things are still happening to you. Frank rolled his eyes at this for a while. They talked in a different way than usual about how things felt. Um, they agreed that lives were not easily told, which, you know, is like a really lovely line. Frank speculated that many life stories consisted precisely in a search for a reiterated pattern for habits. Uh, thus one set of habits were somehow, um, unsatisfactory and you needed to change them and were thereby thrown into a plot, which was the hunt for new habits or even, but exceptionally the story of giving up such a hunt in favor of sticking with what you have or remaining chaotically in the existential moment. Uh, thus Frank was living a plot while Anna was living a life and they talked about personal matters. Um, and when they talked about personal matters, he had news while she had the same old, same old, which is understood by both of them to be the desired state. Um, you know, like very interesting kind of like juxtaposition there, right? Like, because on the, on the one hand, that idea of like, you know, daily life as like the reproduct as reproductive, right. Um, you know, as like, um, uh, about sustaining and maintenance and care and all of these things that don't, yeah, don't have story, don't act like stories, you know, and don't have temporalities that point toward futurity, right. Um, you know, and then we oppose that to like plot, to event, to news, right. To newness, to the coming in of newness, um, you know, in the, you know, much in the way that like in thinking about definitions of life, often like defining life as reproductive, i.e. aimed toward the future is seen as like in opposition to thinking about life as, as metabolic, right. As, as the sustenance of the self, something like that. Right. Um, but, but also of course, like that daily life and that idea of like wanting that same old, same old, particularly when that same old, same old is defined as like having the nest that keeps you like, you know, keeps you cocooned and safe. Like it's right there in the same old, same old where, you know, there needs to be the possibility of opening up for change. Right. And thinking that like things are going to be different and life is going to be lived differently at that level of the same old, same old. And on the other side, like, it's not, you know, it's not going to be about like plot or like absolute agency or being the hero or, you know, which even Frank kind of knows. I mean, you know, most of the time he doesn't think that he's the hero of his own story when he has those moments where he's like, Oh God, maybe I'm just a beta male, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think it's a real American problem too of and a male and a male very male problem obviously of like believing that you're the hero of your own story and that there's like a some narrative that you're living out or whatever and um yeah, the core difference the core difference between an well one of the core differences between a novel and real life is that a novel has an end. Has a plot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> has a plot, you know, a plot has an ending. Uh and it has an overall arc and a pattern whereas a life is just like yeah, 
full of sound and fury and signifying nothing. Yeah. And like that, and, and like this, this really comes out, I think in the third book uh, with Charlie and Joe's plot, right. Where Charlie really, and, and I want to get to that as well. And on 486, when, when Charlie's cleaning the house, yeah. which I think has another great passage and where Charlie is really resisting the change. And well, both Charlie and Anna are resisting the change that they see in Joe. Uh, Anna is resisting it by quantifying it, right? So quantification is coping. She's taking his temperature all the time and worrying about him on a scientific level. Whereas Charlie, you know, is uh, concerned about the llama grooming uh, right. <laughs> and like that the that the Kambalis are going to steal him away and create a God out of him or something like that. And, um, and so there's this way in which they are, they're both in their own ways, looking to sort of freeze time as far yeah. as Joe is concerned, which of course makes me think about Nick, the other child, the elder, the elder yeah. boy. There's this moment with Anna and she's like, oh, Nick is my rock. And he's like, my just like twin. me, yeah. my little twin. And it's just like, oh boy, you're probably really speaking as a firstborn son who's a little <laughs> bit more stable than his uh, younger brother. I would say that's probably not a great attitude to have. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. But, um, right. Talk about but reproduction. Yeah. Yeah, there's a great um, on 486. There's this great, another great line. I think um, similar to the one that you, not similar, but like similarly great to the one you just pointed out. Um, Charlie himself was disorganized. So he's talking about the the condition that their house falls into repeatedly because of their hectic lives. Um, Eventually, their house's interior came to consist of narrow passageways through immense tottering middens of household detritus. <laughs> yeah. I think that's one of the greatest right. lines that I've read out of Kim Stanley Robinson, quite frankly. Really I mean, it's a really good line. It's really good. But then he embarks on this cleaning exercise of vacuuming, right? And um, again, it's it, it relates to the kind of this this dialogue about change we're having where his routine when he goes when he vacuums is to play two beethoven pieces dialed up all the way on two different stereo systems one on the top on the top floor one on the bottom floor vacuuming bashing things all over the all over the house barely like uh containing these uh tottering middens of household detritus and just like you know like just this insane, you know, whirling dervish Tasmanian devil cleaning the house thing. And he, and up until this moment, Joe has enjoyed all of this cacophony and he looks over and Joe is like freaking out crying. Right. And, um, you know, of course throughout this, this section, uh, Joe is not acting like himself. Joe is, is either too high or too low, or, you know, he's just, he's not reacting the way that he used to react. And there's this big crisis within the home of things are changing in regards, in regards to Joe. And of course, the child is like two years old. Of course, right, right, right. <laughs> of course there's going to be changes. But um, the way that this novel thinks about that kind of change and then kind of has it reflect on that kind of like idyll- quasi-idyllic um you know, um, chaotic controlled chaos of the, um, of the upwardly upper middle class, you know, bougie white family, um, in a single family, uh, housing unit with, 
you know, is, is another kind of like mirror to that, to all of that. Right. 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 And how do you know, I mean, like, you know, either Anna or, or Charlie does think, well, you know, things change really fast with a toddler, right? you know, and uh, so, so they kind of have that thought, but at the same time, like they're, they're worried. Right. And that kind of, you know, there, I mean, and since he's, you know, since he's heating up also, there is a, you know, his, the little world of Joe becomes a like little mirror of like the big world of the, of the earth too. Right. And the question is, you know, like, right. How do you, how do you discern what is a sort of like natural development? Oh, he's, you know, he's too, like he's, he's changing right from like, you know, what is the event that, that is like, crisis based or something like that. Right. And then how does that like, you know, the kind of, um, yeah, exactly. The kind of, um, uh, that, that kind of problem. And of course, like the worry about a person who you love, who's sick, you know, whether that person is your child or your partner or your friend or your cat or whoever it might be like that worry is something that like penetrates daily life all the time. And it penetrates daily life precisely with like its precarity, you know, like daily life is for like that image of Frank in his, in his North face tent on his treehouse, you know, and he's basically like, this is the fucking snuggest place on yeah. earth, you know, like, is this really like, I mean, I mean, it's so like, I love all the treehouse scenes, you know, like, um, but like, that is, that's the image of like home as home as nest, you know? And like, you know, he knows in some ways he feels that this is like a substitute for the real thing that he wants because he wants to be with a woman. He wants to be partnered and he also wants to have children, you know, but, but still like that idea of the home as nest is the kind of like, it's the cozy place that like, even if the tree sways, it's not going to fall. Like the wind is not actually going to penetrate. Like, you know, it, anybody, you know, people have to knock at the door. They can't just come in, you know? Um, but that's all, you know, that's always like a, you know, that is the sort of like fantasy account of like one safety, like, you know, because you're not outside of, you know, capitalism when you're at home mm -hmm. and you're not outside of history when you're at home, you know, like, um, you know, and you're not outside of chance when you're at home, like right. your kid could get sick, you know, you're like, cat could get sick like a bunch of could, tibetans could bring a tiger over to there could be tigers faces. over and then your cats start peeing everywhere that yeah. in, in an extremely believable um yeah uh, detail i want to say one i had one other thing that i wanted to say that i was thinking i feel like it kind of goes with it goes at least with the discussion that we were having about like culture and like mm. the idea of permaculture um on on 421, when they meet with the, um, what are they called? The Army Corps. Uh, yeah, the Army Corps of Engineers. The Army Corps of Engineers. And they meet with like the general who runs the Army Corps of Engineers, which is still like, to me, like a completely hilarious American institution. Like the idea that like, oh, the way in which we like solve these like big structural and infrastructural problems is like, it has to be like the, ar the army and it has to be headed by a general. We have to call it an army. We have to call it a general. Otherwise we can't take it seriously. Right? If there was, if there, if you don't have that military discipline, like you can't do this stuff. Um, and like, uh, Frank is talking with him. What's his name? Rack. Rack. Arthur Rack. Arthur Rack. Fantastic name. Yeah. Uh, 
like some of the names in here, I feel like reach have a little like Dickensian. Um, of course. Uh, 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 um, so, uh, Uh, he says, uh, Frank says like, um, major climate mitigation and the rack says, oh, heck yes. We like those kinds of challenges. Who wouldn't? Frank had to laugh. The world was their sandbox, castles and moats, dams and bulwarks. They had drained and rehydrated the Everglades. They kept New Orleans dry most of the time. Uh, Wah, wah, that you know yeah. doesn't work out as well uh they'd rerouted all the major rivers irrigated the west moved mountains i mean it's an extraordinary catalog right um you know this is like a weird echo with um years of rice and salt uh the that like beautiful catalog of making the world a garden yeah this is like the other side of when you think you're going to make the world a garden is when you're going to irrigate the desert and uh move move mountains right yeah uh you could see all that right there on the and it's going to be a general who does it right yeah. there on the general's happy face stewardship sustainability fine i mean question mark right (laughs) rack but not ruin working for the long haul just meant no end ever to their sandbox games i mean you know like you know play is play is good but also i don't know about moving mountains right um no deep ecologists in the u.s army corps of engineers i guess frank says haha rack's eyes twinkled you give us a chance and we'll become deep ecologists. We'll go right down to the mantle. And that, what made me think of that is like one, like, oh God, I mean, like, this is not a heartening conversation. And two, it is interesting that the sort of, I mean, so I think one way to think about that, the way that that permaculture idea is working is that it has the potential to invoke something like the idea of intrinsic intrinsic value Mm -hmm. um but that kind of argument that is about like you know what are what are the ways in which we should or should not interact with the planet which is like at the heart of the debates in around um uh, terraforming Mars and, you know, what Mars first organizes around, right. Is the idea that there is intrinsic value. These are not just rocks. Right. Um, and part of the way the constitution of Mars gets written, um, is precisely, you know, to, to protect stuff that has intrinsic value. And like, that's an idea that just like, for like the techno solutions that come out of the scientific side and for the techno solutions or the like rhetorical solutions that come out of the political side, like we do not, you know, this, like, I mean, I think other things come up like this, right. But like this mention of deep ecology only, which the general can only like make into a joke that sounds like, you know, like drill baby drill, right. Like, um, is just like this one kind of like haunting moment of a kind of thought that I think can't be had within these, uh, discourses, but is really important. Yeah. Like value isn't even a term that's up for debate here. It's not even a real idea that enters in. It's just, well, I mean, that's, that kind of goes with, I think it's the previous section we talked about. There's a passage where that said, um, Basically, the idea is going to be that we're going to save the world in order to keep doing science, right? right. Um, and then this transmogrifies later in KSR's novels in Ministry, I think, to we're going to save the world in order, capitalism is going to save the world in order for capitalism to keep being capitalism, which I think is a much more dubious uh, uh, proposition than science saving the world in order for to keep doing science because capitalism is just going to capitalism is creating the perfect world for itself. It's yes. turning the world into Mars, which is a perfect <laughs> capitalist utopia because everything is going to have to be paid for. Um, um, but, um, but yeah, what I ran out of my, Oh, brain. 
I mean, the one, the other place where I think, and I thought you Sorry. were going to, no, 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 I thought you were going to go there, which is what made me think of it. I mean, the other place where we see something like the idea of like right. a conversation about value is with, is with the Tibetans. Yes. Uh, right. Yes. And, you know, that comes out in their, like when we get their account of what it is to do science. Right. Right. Um, and like, that's kind of circuit, you know, that that's part of the work and the, and in particular, like, you know, not just them as, as people, but them as Buddhists, like that's, that is the kind of place here where we get this, um, you know, we get these kind of possibilities that don't really fit into the sort of like the science side of the science in the capital or the capital side of the science in the capital, right? right. And, you know, and, and, and it becomes possible to like have certain kinds of other thoughts about like what the relation to the planet might be that is yeah. not, you know, like, um, uh, yeah, I, I was going to mention, and I don't, I, I won't talk about this too much, but I'm reading another book right now called God's Red Sun by Lewis S. Warren, which is about the ghost dance religion in mm. 1889-90. And um, it, it's always talked about in res, in regards to the massacre of Wounded Knee with, where and like kind of like the ghost dance religion ends with the Wounded Knee. But actually there's two versions of, or there's two branches of it. And one was in the south, the north, which is the Wounded Knee one. And then one was in the south, which actually continued long after that, but it's really about the origins of the ghost dance religion. And it had a lot to do with just um, Native Americans adapting to the new capitalist, essentially um, capitalist and US imperialist reality that surrounded them, among which was like radical drought brought on by natural forces, but also the irrigation of the West and like the loss of water, of, 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 of traditional water places where water would be mm. and um the the ecological destruction of uh of the places where they would have gotten their where they got their food for like you know many many generations and so that the ghost dance actually emerged out of this kind of so it's actually called the ghost dance in the making of modern america so it's about kind of like mm. how at that time, those Native American populations had had no other choice really but to adapt to modernity. Um, and part of the ghost dance was preaching, no, go get a job, engage in wage labor, like call it, you know, we can't go to war with the whites anymore. You just have to like relent essentially. Um, and so it wasn't primarily a, a violent movement at all. Um, so anyway, that's kind of yeah. the, the idea of irrigating the West made me think of that and yeah. that kind yeah. of like deep history of this, you know, modernizing capitalist imperium that sweeps over, you know, the continent um, and produces these like, you know, changes throughout culture and society that are economic and religious and um, and all of that. Um is like the history is so much is is just so much deeper than we've been given to understand simply because of the exact forces that have produced this situation, which extend not only to like the science, the harnessing of science by capitalism, but also the harnessing of history itself right. by capitalism. Right, right, right. And 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 specifically by like settler, yeah. settler colonialism, right? right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Huh. Oh, that's really interesting. It's a great book. It's really, really well 
written and documented. It's absolutely fascinating. Um, I wanted to bring up one. I mean, there's not a, there's a lot more to talk about, but I think we'll probably be done soon. The Aculean Aculean hand axe, Achillean. Oh yeah, yeah, it? yeah, yeah. Oh heck yeah. The Achillean, Achillean hand axe. It immediately became his favorite rock. And <laughs> I would hope it would be his favorite rock because he spent like hundreds of dollars on it. Like if I spent hundreds of dollars on a rock, it'd be like, this is my favorite rock. <laughs> but you know, you can't decide that a rock is going to be your favorite until you hold it in your hand. It's I mean, true. that's a real risk about buying something like that, I would say. It is true. It is true. And I looked up Aculean hand axes as well on eBay and I, I they were available. I don't remember how much they were, but they didn't look at all like Frisbees to me. They looked like just like pointy rocks. <laughs> I mean, I love like the story, the story of the um, of the Frisbee guys uh, and the Frisbee sublime is just like is fantastic. I mean, I, I also like that Frank is like kind of um, uh, the Frank is like doesn't seem to have totally guessed that they would be like freegans who are like squat squatting you know like he in some ways he doesn't seem to have needed to explain to himself at all who they are where they came from you know they're just like they are kind of like you know like a, a shaman and some i don't know apprentice shamans i mean it's frank's attitude toward them and to the bros who live in the park is very like oh they're just people who are here yeah <laughs> <laughs> like so he's like he won Frank wondered where the bros slept, but he didn't want to ask because that would be rude or whatever. And he never even wonders where the Frisbee guys um, sleep. I do like the Frisbee golf um, as religion, right? One of them says, this is our religion. And, and Frank himself participates in this kind of running religion where they, you know, he literally loses track of time in the act of play, which is, um, you know, um, fond memories of childhood where you could just play and play and play and, and not really worry about what time it was or any of that kind of thing. Um, and then their, their encounter with the aurochs, right? Yeah. The clone, the cloned, the cloned aurochs is so great. I love they that. They throw their frisbees at him. I love that. I mean, and the sort of, um, you know, the, um, so one, I mean, one, just that there is like a cloned, a cloned, um, uh, you know, um, uh, well, I was going to say prehistoric animal, but actually like I looked it up and the last aurochs died in like the like 15th century, 16th century, something like that. Um, so they, ha they managed to hang on for a long, for a, <laughs> a long time, but still like the, like, um, the kind of like, at that point, like, you know, the gibbons. Oh, the terrible scene when, the, when he finds the dead wombats that yeah. made me very sad. Um, but just like the kind of, like the park is a, ma the park is a magical space, which is why mm -hmm. like, you know, I mean, you know, we hear, you know, he, he even thinks like it's Mirkwood, you know, this is the ancient forest. Like, um, uh, you know, his tree is like the Axis Mundi. I mean, the like, um, uh, you know, and that aspect of it, I think is really wonderful. And of course, in that way, like he doesn't ask questions about where people go or where they come from. And part of what makes that great is like the intrusion of the cops into the park feels like ter particularly terrible, I think, yeah. like not necessarily to Frank, but to the reader, because this yeah. is like this, 
other kind of space. But well, yeah, this I is love- part of part of Frank's naive. I just wanted to add part of before yeah, I forget yeah. Frank's naivete about the legal status of the bros in the park. Like, why don't you call the cops when someone steals your stuff or beats you up? It's like, uh, bro, like we're yeah, we're not the kind of people that the cops. It's kind of a property based. Like that's one one person tells him like, it's kind of a property based political system that we have <laughs> in America. I don't know if you've noticed right, that. exactly exactly well that's funny because there is that he then he does kind of have this impulse like when he's helping them with their shelters like he's going to improve their property you yeah know, like yeah, yeah. Be better you know like i mean and practically like yes he does seem to actually be helping them there but also like um yeah um the uh I love the kind of like, so they, they have thought before about how it would be fun to throw the Frisbees at animals. Um, because I guess that would be cool because it's like a moving, a moving target. Um, but really as Spencer himself had argued when they discussed it, they were hunting without killing already. And sometimes if they hit them, animals would get hurt. Uh, that was the whole point of the killer frisbee theory. If they wanted the animals to prosper in the park, which after all was not so big, if they wanted animals to inhabit the world with them, which was also not so big, then they oughtn't harass them by whacking them out of the blue with hard plastic discs. Best Dharma practice was compassion for all sentient beings. Thus using them for targets was contraindicated. So they had refused the temptation, glad that they were able to have the thought that it would be bad to throw frisbees at animals. Now Spencer's point seemed to be that this was a magic magical occasion outside all everyday agreements. There stood an icon from the Ice Age, a living fossil in effect, sprung to life from the cave paintings of Lascaux and Altamira, so that really they had to abandon their ordinary protocols to do justice to the beast and enter the sacred space of the Paleolithic mind. Make this magnificent creature their target as a sort of religious ritual, even a religious obligation, one might say. All this Spencer conveyed by mime, making faces as contorted and clear as any demon mask. All at once, Frank whispered. The others nodded. Frank aimed and threw the rest of them, and four discs flashed through the forest. One hit a tree, another struck the aurochs on the flank, causing them to bolt up the ridge and away, out of sight before they were even done screaming. They high-fived each other and ran to collect their frisbees and play. I, I I still don't think they should have thrown the frisbees at the aurochs. Two things: if Hillary's voice sounded muffled, it's because there was a cat between <laughs> between her mouth and the microphone. Yeah. Number two, the aurochs is like big, right? It's like huge. very large. Yeah. It's not gonna get hit by a fris like get hurt by a frisbee. You know what I mean? No, but you should. I mean, just like because it's not gonna get hurt. I mean, you shouldn't like throw a like you know rock at a great blue whale either. Come on, it's a big dumb animal. Have some ah! fun. <laughs> my cat is right here she can hear what I you're know, saying i know <laughs> um no they're just a bunch of guys you know they're doing guy shit out there it, is, it does have a little bit of like the guy shit part that the, the park is a hyper male space in a way that's kind well, of surprising yeah. in a way but um well because we see some women early on and frank does think oh it's probably harder for the women yeah and you know like yeah one would think yeah. and just as it probably is also harder for like the young kid who is the chess right. hustler and also hustles like Ch- chess man yeah and then but yeah the brutalities that the bros suffer in the park are really we only get windows into them through frank and frank is rather 
I don't know if sanguine is the right word, but naive about them. You know, they're, they're being menaced by some other guys at a certain point. Oh, and this section ends with him getting breaking up shit. this fight and getting his yeah. fucking shit yeah. fucked up really badly. By the guy who was doing the crazy driving? But he thought it was. He like, he when once he kicks him in the in the shin and knocks him down, he looks at him again and says he realizes it wasn't the guy who was doing the crazy driving. Oh, he just, he just maybe looked like him. But I feel like, you know, after this, after Frank's concussion, his sort of mental space becomes a real, a much bigger thematic question. I mean, his mental competency or like his kind of brain itself becomes a much more central question in the book. And we've been, you know, we've been pointing this out throughout what we've, what we've already read is that he's already a very unstable individual. Um, he yeah. just has, is, is able to tell himself this story about how he does have everything together, um, even though he's, it's almost all falling apart all the time. Here, it's it's almost like that he's like, it's the guy in the truck. It's almost like a willful hallucination because he sees yeah. this threat yeah. um, and then projects onto that threat a, a prior threat that he can kind of contextualize around it in a way. Um, because that would be too weird. And um, right, completely. because prior to this too, um, another, so the, the bros in the park face a threat of some guys looking to buy drugs. It's a very ambiguous, ambivalent moment. Like, are they yeah. looking to buy drugs or force them to sell drugs or, you know, what, you know, it's some kind of a weird thing prior to that, I think is when the, some cops encounter the, you know, throw them all on the ground and rouse them and take away one of them. Right. Yeah. yeah. And in retrospect, this is a kind of a spoiler alert for people who've read, who've read, who haven't read the entire trilogy. We might like from the standpoint of the end project backwards and say, is this, are these people actually looking for Frank or looking right. to get a kind of informer in this group who can report back about Frank um, right. Um, and his kind of comings and goings, because it does seem very, I mean, the bros have an explanation for the guy that is, that is rousted and arrested is that he was beating people up in some other park or whatever. Um, but it also does seem like a, a really like violent, um, episode where a bunch of cops come in guns drawn and throw all these homeless people on the ground and, and take one of them away. Like, um, yeah, that's a very disturbing kind of uh you know yeah moment and a, and a and a and a realistic break in the bubble of this kind of lost boys narrative yeah that's yeah, happening, yeah right yeah 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 right i mean and you know like this is we do learn more also about um you know the intensification with which frank is being surveilled right um the intensification of his of the surveillance in this right. section when he meets up again with his mystery lady yeah caroline Caroline. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, yeah. And more about Frank and women and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. He goes on a date that. with Diane in New York and da, yep. da, 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 da. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, that seems like a good place to start. I think I, yeah, I think that's great to start or to stop. I said, start <laughs> finally, let's, we can get started let's start talking now. Yeah. <laughs> um, I've got to go and do some dumpster diving for food uh, about with uh, do try to do some freeganism and uh, yeah, do it, man. I'm not going to do that. Um, no, I, I know you're not. 
I know you're not. Uh, I, I, uh, um, what am I going to do? Oh, one thing I do want to mention before we, before we end. Yeah. I went outside right before this. It was, it was okay. Um, <laughs> on the note of, it was all right. It was you it's know, okay. It's there's okay. garbage everywhere. Um, and like just dilapidated housing. Emerson on Beatitude. This is the beginning oh, yeah. of of Frank of another aspect avenue of Frank's religious journey. Um, here, a very American one, obviously that we'll have to keep track of. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, all. Yeah. I just want to mention. No, that. good. No, no, I'm glad you remembered to bring that up. Yeah, because that becomes a more central aspect as well. Um, great job, Hillary. Great job, Matt. Good we job, listeners. Good job, listeners. Thanks for thanks for listening. Louise is purring at you right now and then just burped a little bit. She burped a little bit. Don't forget to watch uh, Tokyo Vice on HBO Max. Oh, yeah. New Michael Mann. First first episode is very good. Very good. Second episode is not as good. I'm about halfway through the second episode. It's clearly not directed by Michael Mann. Very clearly not. I mean, you like, wow. Like he, you know, auteurism is real. Like he has a... (laughs) Finally, we have proof. Finally, there's proof. <laughs> Go ahead and watch that. And um, thank you for listening. And you can email us or tweet us. And um, we look we forward to hearing to hear from, from you. you. Absolutely. Thank you. Oh, we have a new supporter on Anchor too. So thanks to that person. Oh. Yeah, we got an email from Anchor saying we have a new supporter. Awesome. Thank you, supporter. Yeah, it, very nice of them. They might All not right. be listening to this. They might be listening to us talk about the Mars trilogy. Well, we'll thank or, them at the beginning of the next re- episode. Or really anything. They might be listening to us talk about anything. Probably it's no nice. one's listening to us right now because it's at the end of the episode. And I, most people don't listen past the halfway mark. Really? I think so. Yeah, you can find that online. We just, we get so, so much better as we go on. I think so. But, you know, people have shit to do in their lives. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't expect anybody to pay attention to any of it, you know, like, Eh. um, okay. All right. Good. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.